Welcome to Webinecki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinecki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinecki perspectives on topics of interest. Webinecki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today is the fifth show in part two of our series on unpacking sovereignty. Our guests today are Professor Harold Prince, attorneys Sherry Mitchell, Corey Hinton, and Nicole Fredericks. Professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at Kansas State. Sherry Mitchell is a member of the Penobscot Nation. She graduated with a bachelor's degree from the University of Maine, magna cum laude, and received her Juris Doctorate and a Certificate in Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy from the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law. Sherry is the founding director of the Land Peace Foundation, an organization dedicated to the global protection of Indigenous rights and the preservation of the Indigenous way of life. Corey Hinton is a citizen of the Passamaquoddy tribe from Pleasant Point. He is also an attorney at the law firm of Drummond Woodsum, where he leads the firm's tribal nations practice group. Corey's practice focuses on the representation of tribal nations on issues related to environmental quality, employment issues, and economic development. More broadly, Corey's career focus is on building stronger, more resilient tribal nations and the protection of indigenous sovereignty. Nicole Friedrichs is a practitioner in residence at Suffolk University Law in Boston, Massachusetts, where she teaches federal Indian law and directs the Human Rights and Indigenous Peoples Clinic. The clinic serves the native nation building needs of tribal nations, working with tribal government leaders, attorneys, and elders to draft laws and with tribal courts and staff to develop court procedural and evidentiary rules. Land claims was a suit against the state of Maine by Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, and Maliseet tribes for around two-thirds of the state of Maine. On this show, we will look at the legal aspects of the settlement, the effects of the act, and our thoughts on this act and what should happen to it. Okay, so <clears throat> who wants to go first? Um, uh, should I choose? Uh, okay, so Nicole, <laughs> I'm gonna take you first. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in the, the Suffolk report you did for Mitzik. Yeah. And the pieces that really stood out to you in that report. Can you say something about that? Sure, yeah, I can give a little background on how the report came to be, if that's helpful too for yep. the listeners as well. Yep. So, Sorry. yeah. Um, Mitzik had reached out, I think I actually put an RFP out probably in 2015, uh, looking for researchers to kind of examine four parts of the settlement acts, both within the state and within the federal. And the clinic um, submitted a proposal and was granted the, RF, the, the, the grant uh, probably in 2016. And over the course of the next 12 months, uh, Myself, along with a couple of the clinic students and another attorney, 
dove deep into the archives down in Washington around the drafting of the main Indian Claim Settlement Act, which was the federal, federal law. And there were four areas they asked us to look, look at. Um, one had to do with uh, the definition of sustenance. One had to do around the reservation of rights under the implicated treaties. Uh, one had to do with the definition of internal tribal matters, which is actually found in the state settlement act. And then the final area they asked us to look at were uh, sections 1735B and 1725H, which have to do with federal laws and kind of the non-application of federal laws, both before 1980 and after 1980 to the tribes. And so we looked, we went down to DC and dug through the archives, um, primarily a kind of a, a document review as opposed to interviewing any folks. And it was focused primarily on, on those, those documents. So what stuck out to me most, and I, you know, this is now five years, we did this research and I'm actually in the process of kind of putting, finalizing a law review article based on that research that kind of allows me to focus more narrowly onto some of the bigger standouts to me and, and pull together some ideas I've had around it. Um, what stood out to me as I went through the documents was you know, somebody who took federal Indian law in law school and had been practicing it at that point for about you know, 12 years, 13 years, was the, you know, that, that there were very few references to tribal sovereignty. I mean, that phrase, inherent tribal sovereignty, sovereignty, tribal sovereignty, it was really not a phrase, a term that was used in the letters that went to Congress, to the senators, to the House. Um, it was not used by any of the state officials. It was really kind of jarring to me to not see that term used. And as somebody and all of us who practice in this area of law, you know, that's kind of the foundational principle, right, that you learn right off the bat when you take federal Indian law. So to me, that was really striking. Um, and the language that they used was the language of municipalities and this internal tribal matters carve out. So the same question on the land claims to, uh, I'm going to ask both of you, uh, Sherry and Corey. So uh, Corey, your, your take on the settlement, what, what stands out to you with that? A lot. I, um, I, I actually helped come up with a list of issues that were in that Mythic RFP um, that Nicole responded to. Um, and it was Jamie Bissonette Louie was the, the Mythic commissioner at the time, or sorry, the chairperson. And we, we developed that list because those all stood out, right? I mean, those were clearly um, retained reserved rights, um, 16B. These were flashpoints between the tribes and the state of Maine over 40 years, um, almost 40 years at that point. What, and so that said, the report highlighted some things that have continued to be really alarming trends. And there's so much to be unpacked. It's not really possible in this, amount of time to go into detail on all of the things that I find most interesting and frustrating about the Settlement Act. But 16B is something that um, is, it weighs heavily on my mind these days as, as the, the Wabanaki nations are 
um, fighting in Congress for access to federal beneficial laws in the future. Interestingly, and I, I read very closely Nicole's um, and her, her team's conclusions on 16B and the fact that this provision of the Settlement Act blocking access to these federal laws prospectively was added at the 11th hour, I think is, is the phrase that they use in the report, it's really significant. And that provision has had you know, billion dollar ramifications. I mean, like untold economic impacts. Well, hopefully told, we'll find out here in a little bit maybe, but just massive socioeconomic impacts, not just economic, but really truly on the public health and safety of these communities as well. And I've lived through a lot of those debates, but this is what's, this is what I want to know. I had a meeting with Senator King about three weeks ago with the other chiefs and the chiefs um, had met with Senator Collins and then Senator King about the pending congressional efforts to gain prospective future access to these federal beneficial laws. And Senator King said to us in that meeting that the, the lack of access to federal beneficial laws was a quintessential part of the deal. And I think he might have used the word quintessential or some other synonym for quintessential as though like that was a fundamental pillar of the deal the whole time. And I, I, I'm not one to you know, disagree or become litigious with United States senators, but I had to say respectfully, uh, I think the objective evidence shows that that's not true. There was this whole report done. And he said, I, he, he was offended by you know, that, um, me pointing out that conclusion. And I had to say, listen, it's an incontrovertible fact that 16B was added at the 11th hour after all of those months and years of negotiations, it was added at the end of the day. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, and that has, it will continue to have, and it has had just significant impacts that, you know, we can't even begin to really truly quantify. The best economists couldn't say, I think truly from a health perspective, from a public safety perspective, and from an you know, economics perspective, what's happened? Because I can see doctors haven't been hired, police officers haven't had funding, courts haven't had jurisdiction to you know, prosecute um, perpetrators of domestic violence. Who knows the ripple effects that that's had in our communities? These are the ongoing living consequences of the Settlement Act. That's what raised, that's what weighs most heavily on my mind right now, particularly thinking about Nicole's work. Sherry? Thank you, Donna. Uh, thank you, Corey and Nicole. I, you know, I just want to say for people who are not going to be reading the law um, and referring to this in, you know, in, in, in regard to citations, uh, that 16B is specifically talking about the elimination for all main tribes of access to rights that are have been delineated by the federal government for all of the other 574 other federally recognized tribes. Um, and so that was said earlier, but I just you know, wanna clarify that for people who are listening who might not know what 16B is. Um, and I think that that's probably the most stark aspect of this for everyone is um, not only that last minute addition without any tribal consultation, there are many tribal people 
who were part of the process all through the throughout the entire negotiation process who will tell you that they had no idea that that was being placed into the settlement act that it was done without any knowledge of of the tribal peoples who were negotiating that agreement and um, that it was a unilateral decision made entirely by those who were representing the state of Maine uh, as a form of minimizing the sovereignty of, of Wabanaki peoples. Um, and it came at a time when there was a real threat that uh, future settlement acts would not be signed by the incoming president. Uh, so there was this sense of urgency and, uh, and crisis of time that was attached to that, that, that signing as well. Um, and so uh, to have tribal people find out that this had been added without their knowledge um, and that they had been pushed to hurry up and sign this agreement because you know, you're not gonna get another chance um, felt heartbreaking to them because their people depended upon them. Their people were counting on them to make a good deal for, for them going forward into the future. And so all of these tribal people who negotiated in good faith during that process from the tribes um, were then deceived at the very end and had to go home and explain to their people why all of the things that Corey just listed um, were happening. Why aren't we able to adequately fund the um, services that are so desperately needed in our communities? Why can't we have you know, adequate medical care? Why can't we, um, you know, properly fund our social services and our, you know, our um, public services like our police force? Why don't we have a fire department in our community anymore, right? Like all of these kinds of things um, that have an impact on a daily basis. How long does it take for an ambulance to get to the reservation from a neighboring town? Uh, how long does it take for, people to be able to access medical care in, in the midst of a crisis. Um, you know, how long does it take for backup law enforcement to come and support tribal peoples uh, if the neighboring town even comes? Because we've had incidents where the neighboring town near our reservation won't come in the midst of a crisis to back up tribal um, police forces, uh, which are very limited. And so all of these things have these, these larger impacts on us but they also impact the relationship that the state of Maine has with the Wabanaki nations because it set a precedent of continued deprivation and oppression and taking that goes on to the day, to this day um, where they're still misinterpreting aspects of the Settlement Act in ways that are harming uh, not only economically, but culturally, um, environmentally, and in, in countless other ways harming uh, the Wabanaki nations and all of the peoples who live within those territories. Um, and so, you know, that aspect of it is critically important. And I think that, you know, we can go back even further when we're thinking about this stuff. And, and one of the things that I, that I often think about is uh, if you look at the, the three cases that, um, the Marshall Trilogy that, you know, the whole notion of sovereignty goes back to, uh, and, you know, under, under federal law for tribes. There's no aspect of sovereignty in the laws delineating tribal sovereignty. It's a, it's a, whole, it's a whole series of, um, of, of cases that are outlining dependency upon the federal government and the federal government's authority over tribes. 
And so like in the language, if you're thinking about what does it mean to be sovereign uh, and develop also deepen, what does that mean? It means I own myself. And how can you own yourself if you're the dependent of another? Um, and so this whole notion of sovereignty is problematic from the very, very beginning. Uh, and then it's been further eroded by the actions and the interpretations of the state of Maine. And um, so, I mean, I think those things and the disappearance of the word land in the Land Claims Settlement Act and the unilateral shifting of that language from Land Claims Settlement Act to Settlement Act, um, which led to, you know, cases that we're, we're dealing with today where there's the, the taking of our territorial waters um, and the assumption that water and land are are you know interchangeable uh, in the language of of the agreement, uh, which is hugely problematic. And so, you know, I think the not only the act of including that language that takes away the rights, but the attitude of taking and continued taking that was at the heart of that that continues to run through the relationship between the state of Maine and the Wabanaki nations is the most problematic aspect for me. Um. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Nicole and Corey and Sherry, um, uh, for this excellent uh, setup. And uh, to go quickly back to what Nicole uh, said in the very beginning of this uh, particular uh, interview show, uh, and that is um, about uh, the pressure, and I think Sherry also mentioned it, the pressure with which um, all the participants in the negotiations that led to the Settlement Act uh, under which they operated. And um, the pressure is evident uh, all over the place, uh, where great fear uh, was that uh, the Republican administration that was going to come into power uh, would not um, uh, sign off. And that's why the last act that was signed into law uh, was the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act by Jimmy Carter. Um, and so that pressure is partially explaining, but only partially, what has happened that has led to so much discontent uh, subsequently and sorrow. Um, and Corey just mentioned a whole series of, um, of issues that um, happened in particular at the last minute uh, of the Settlement Act when added, people had added uh, certain pieces in the legislation. But the other thing I'd like to point out and what's striking for me is to what degree uh, the paradigm of 1980 has shifted uh, in the year, let's say today, 2022. We are now talking about issues like inherent sovereignty uh, as self-evident. That was a different kind of uh, mindset with which the operators in 1980 uh, dealt with. Um, it should have been on their mind, but it wasn't. Um, and the reason it wasn't, in particular on the part of the main uh, senators, uh, Mitchell and Cohen, who represented um, uh, Maine in the federal government, um, but also in terms of uh, the state um, uh, negotiators and as well as, as the attorneys, was a history in which Maine was completely different from the rest of the country in terms of how to think about uh, its native rights. And you see that very uh, clearly marked out, and we discussed it in the earlier show, in the 1830s, when the alienation happened of the four townships of the Penobscot Nation, uh, and that led to Donna's uh, piece on um, uh, the, 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 the article that she wrote together with two attorneys on 
um, on the um, on the fraudulence right of the um, sales that under which the um, the sales were signed in uh, 1833. And that murky situation then, if you go back to the records from that period, you already see a distinction being made uh, between how the Cherokee and Georgia were being dealt with uh, by people like Jackson at the time, and how they pointed out even then in the 1830s, the hypocrisy of the main legislators in terms of wagging their finger against the South, when they in themselves were uh, basically having taken away the whole idea of sovereignty of the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy nations, which is very fascinating. So if you take a huge time span from the 1830s to the 18, sorry, to the 1980s, that's 150 years, that certain pieces in that paradigm have not changed. And that is the, uh, the coming back to the issue of sovereignty, that is the idea that the state of Maine as the um, successor state to Massachusetts had the guardian role uh, assumed and eradicated the notion of um, inherent sovereignty altogether. That, they, they, that was just outside of their um, domain. The only reason why Massachusetts, coming even back further in history, um, relented to a degree to Arno's uh, request in 1776, 1775 actually, when the uh, American Revolution was just starting, was um, that uh, Arno at that time was able to bring back to the table the fact that the protection of the land of the Penobscot nation, but also of the neighboring nations, had come under threat of ongoing encroachment against which the, the Massachusetts state at the time did nothing about. And he kind of made that deal. And that was one reason why they uh, refused to sign the treaty in 1784, refused again to sign the treaty in 1786, refused to come back to the table in 1788, and then finally, under great, great pressure in 1796, uh, actually signed the treaty uh, that we all know about um, in terms of relinquishing um, uh, about half of the designated reservation at the time, uh, but thereby also giving up Aboriginal title. And therefore, the whole notion of that inherent sovereignty was already quashed at that, squashed at that time. So that whole historical element that we've talked about collectively has created this paradigm that was in the mindset of people like Cohen, Mitchell, but also of, um, of um, Brennan and so on and so forth. Everybody was basically operating in a mindset of colonialism um, where, where, where the fundamentals of that had, had, had emerged in that previous 150 years or so um, that then led to those kind of deals that at that time, by two thirds of the, of the, of the tribes was signed off on, one third, as you know, refused to sign even then. So it's a very complicated uh, story, but as an anthropologist looking back at history, I'd like to look at these paradigms, worldviews, if you will, within which certain concepts are self-evident, other concepts are kind of new, and that later, like the concept of, of inherent sovereignty, we've got to saying, how the hell did they not do this? And that's often the case. How the hell did they do, did do something or didn't do something because later it is no longer self-evident, like now. Donna, might, might I add something to that point? I just, Absolutely. Uh, unless you want to go a different direction. I just, I think it's an interesting point that I, that I thought I'd share a little bit. Is that okay? Yes. Yeah. So 
I, I agree that there's support for this idea that the state officials at the time viewed native people in Maine as different from other native people in the, in the United States. Um, that, that I think is, seems to be supported by from what I've read too and, and heard. But I, I do wanna add that I think there was also a active decision made on the part of those state officials who were, from what I could see reading through the archives, were fully aware of what federal law entailed with regards to inherent tribal sovereignty, right? I mean, I read through, you know, and I think even um, must have been Tim Woodcock. I mean, he, he took classes on federal Indian law. I mean, he, you know, he, and he was one of, sorry, I should say who he is. He was one of the congressional aides to uh, Senator Cohen at the time. I mean, he was extremely well-versed in tribal sovereignty, inherent all the kind of fundamental principles of federal Indian law. And I agree with Sherry, there are, that, that foundation is also problematic. Um, so they were very aware of it. And one of the documents that I thought is, was very striking to come across. This was a, I'll just, I'm just pulling it up here so I can read it directly. So this was an August 1980 memo that Tim Woodcock had drafted for Senator Cohen. And it, to me, it kind of indicates this decision that active and kind of fully aware decision that they were making to treat native people in Maine differently from other tribes. They understood what tribal sovereignty meant. They just decided not to use it in Maine. Yeah, because in part because they viewed native people as different, but also because they didn't want to treat native people in Maine like other native people. So there was this one section from this memo. And he, and so this is what Tim Woodcock says to Senator Cohen. He says, the jurisdictional agreement, so talking through the internal trouble matters, the municipality standard, the federal non-application of federal laws, that whole kind of agreement was a quote, adopted because it was believed to be the best device to ensure that the tribes remained under Maine law and did not take on the substantial attributes of sovereignty, which characterized many of the tribes in the West. The state believed it was avoiding the creation of a nation within a nation, which Maine's governor Longley, as you know, had so vigorously decried. So to me, that's such a powerful insight into the decision-making that was being done there. They were fully aware of what tribal sovereignty meant. And at the time, in the 1970s, there was a, 1970s, there was a really robust jurisprudence coming out of the Supreme Court around tribal sovereignty at Williams versus Lee and and several other cases that really were strong affirmations of tribal sovereignty. And I know that's shifted over time, but to me, that really indicates this kind of, you know, blatant kind of decision. We're not gonna treat that, we're gonna treat them differently. We're not gonna afford them the full scope of tribal sovereignty. And I know that's problematic. We're gonna treat them differently. So yes, there was this history that kind of informed how they saw native people, but there was also this kind of active decision that was made to treat them differently. And that's what I find really, you know, I mean, to, to be generous, um, uh, kind of problematic and, you know, and I think unethical, really immoral. I mean, it was really a, a poor decision. I think even in 1980, even in 1980. So I just wanted to add that, um, but I, I just wanted to kind of build on that point that Harold was making. Sure, and uh, I think uh, we need to look at the 1819-1820 uh, um, treaty uh, when they when they signed that treaty, they were fully aware of 1790 Non-Intercourse Act. They knew what they were doing. They chose to move ahead and and leave out federal law. And ever since then, you don't see you didn't see federal uh, 
Indian law taught in the law schools here. Uh, the attorneys here, our main attorneys, uh, totally, uh, you know, were not up on federal Indian law or the canons of uh, construction or principles of Indian, anything. And, and nor did they want to be. They just wanted to create their own law and uh, keep the tribes uh, isolated. Sherry. There are so many things that I wanna say, um, you know, and I wish that, that we did have all the time in the world to have this conversation because it's just, it doesn't matter how much time has passed or how many different ways this has been said. It's still just as um, enraging to me now as the first time that I heard it. Hearing that memo being read out loud is just as enraging to me now as it was um, when, when I heard it the first time. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's not just not wanting to treat tribal people in the ways that other tribal peoples were being treated. I think it, it really, in my opinion, um, was not wanting to treat tribal people as people. Um, and if we, if we look at the history that the state of Maine has, um, even going back to uh, originally under Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Phipps Proclamation when there was a bounty put out on the heads of Penobscot peoples, um, that you know, the, the attitude within this general territory um, was toward the removal of the indigenous peoples who were in the way of the progress of those who had come here to claim this land. Uh, and that attitude um, has been very prevalent throughout this process. I also think that um, you know, what Donna said about the lack of education for adjudicators of the law is critically important. Not only attorneys, but also the judges uh, and justices who are making decisions around federal Indian law cases um, and who are not operating within the canons of construction for federal Indian law um, and who are certainly not, you know, uh, resolving ambiguity in favor of the tribes. Um, that that whole history that we're talking about of having uh, these these legal frameworks that we are still operating under um, be established by this really immoral uh, and unethical uh, way of of being in relationship with the original peoples of this land um, and the imposition of those laws onto those peoples uh, is, is inhumane at its core. And how do you shift something into a more humane relationship that is inhumane at its core? We have to undo the whole thing and start all over again. I mean, there's just no way. Uh, if it's poison from the beginning, then it's gonna poison the entire well all the way through. Uh, and it doesn't matter how many different people dip their cup into that well, the result is gonna be the same. Um, and I, I did wanna say that, you know, my family was one of the families that refused to sign the settlement agreement. I have family members um, who have refused to take a penny of any of the money from the land claims. They, they, their per capita gets sent into some account somewhere because they've never touched a penny of that because they don't agree with um, what happened and they didn't agree at the time with what happened. 
Uh, and I think that, um, you know, in fairness to those who negotiated on our behalf, we have to recognize the inequity and the immorality and the lack of integrity that was inherent in the process um, by those who were really the ones who were holding all the power at that time um, and, and give them the credit that they deserve because prior to that, I mean, it wasn't very long. This, this stuff was being negotiated um, at a time when it had just become legal for us to speak our own language again. It had only just become legal for us to practice our ceremonies. Uh, you know, it wasn't until 1978 that the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was passed, right? And that we were able to be who we are as Kijinawak peoples, uh, to practice our ways of life, our ways of being, and, and to uh, speak into our ways of knowing through our ceremonial practices. And so all of that was happening around the same time. And, and there was a lot of activity um, and, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of learning. There was a steep learning curve for people who were trying to figure all of this out and negotiate on behalf of the tribes during that time. So I have a lot of respect for those who were part of the process um, and for those who signed it and thought that they were doing the very best they could for their people and those who refused to sign it, um, who recognized that, that there was something, you know, there was poison in the well. And so, um, but I think we really do have to pay attention to the, to the core um, inequities and the, and, the, and the core contamination of the entire process from the very beginning. Corey? I think what's, uh, what's, what strikes me in all of this is this notion that is, is inequitable as we all are recognizing that time period to have been um, and that decision-making process and the pressure, the sentiment that somehow a deal is a deal still resonates. And it resonates really deeply. Um, <clears throat> I've heard I've heard that uh, a few times in the past several months. There was just a letter that was written by former Attorney General John Patterson to the legislature um, at the end of July that goes through this you know, deep, very detailed analysis of the Settlement Act, and you know, kind of just underscores this notion that <clears throat> this was all really purposeful and it has to stay the way it is and don't reopen it. Um, this is, it's crazy that this power dynamic that was forced, that, that forced the Settlement Act on the throat, that is by its definition, open to change by both the state and the tribes and the United States Congress, that it can't be changed. Um, what worked in the 1970s? I don't know why folks would assume that it works now. I, I totally get <clears throat> where the state was coming from in the 1970s, not to rationalize it, but there was fear mongering going on. The, the greatest political leaders in the state were making veiled references to you know, going out and people buying guns and ammo. And that was a snapshot in time that's really, really scary. And that's simply not where Maine is now. Um, in the work that I'm doing in the legislature and you know, all of us have been there and have contributed in various ways to tenor and the tone and the participation of Maine citizenry is fundamentally different than it was then. And <clears throat> I think that it's important to um, recognize that the Settlement Act as screwed up as it is, and it was, and the process in particular, it, 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 it's not etched in stone, right? Moses didn't carry it down from Mount Sinai. 
it's a law by Congress that can be changed by Congress at the will of Congress. It's not, we, we don't need to be beholden to the, you know, the philosophies of staffers in the 1970s and 80s who very clearly did not have the long-term best interest of indigenous peoples in, in their minds. Today, I'm not sure if, if Maine as a whole, if all Maine citizens have that same view, that same fear and disdain and quite frankly, bias towards Native Americans that was a, a, a dominant theme in Maine in the 1970s. I don't think Maine is the same way it was. And I'm hopeful that that will be the sort of more positive, constructive tone that we can build from in the future. Because looking to the back, looking to the past, it's <clears> that he said, she said, it can go on all day. I've literally said in rooms with people who think they know what they're talking about and were there in the 1970s and 80s. Oh, we told the tribes about section section 16B. Oh, you know, Tom Tareen, the tribe's lawyer was informed, the negotiating team knew. But then when we talked to Butch Phillips, you know, I think the last living negotiator for the Penobscot Nation, there's no recollection of that, right? And so the tit for tats are not helpful. They're not, they're not constructive. I'd rather see this narrative bend in a more positive direction for future generations, because I think the nations in Maine here have the capacity to be a legitimate positive force in their communities, the way that nations are in other states. You look like in Oklahoma, you know, the way that rural tribes are able to be, you know, hubs for healthcare, hubs for, you know, tornado shelters alone, right? I mean, tribal nations can be the, you know, can be extremely positive catalysts for, for goodness in their, in their communities, tribal and non-tribal. That's what the tribes here in Maine are striving to become. The Settlement Act should be revised to not just recognize the tribe's sovereignty, but to embrace this vision of all Mainers trying to, you know, make better communities together. Um, that, that, that toxicity of the 70s is, is no longer present, and I think it'd be better if we all move past it. I think the toxicity of 1492 is still here. And I think it's come up through uh, our politicians and our, the attorneys here in Maine uh, in, in that office. They still talk about nation within a nation. Uh, they still use those dog whistle terms. Uh, and, and they're still refusing. Uh, you know, even when we, when we convince the legislature, we have one uh, person, one person who can, who can just destroy all of that uh, and be, because of that mindset. So we still have to face that. And in order to address that, I believe we need to be educated. We need to understand uh, what happened historically so that we'll have the tools to address what's going on now. And it's taken us all this time to figure it out. We now have educated uh, tribal attorneys, educated native people who uh, served in the legislature. Uh, we now have the tools to put this together and to figure out how to move forward. Uh, Harold. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, just um, um, 
I've mentioned that before, when I came in 1981 and um, to Maine uh, from Argentina, where I'd worked uh, before, um, I was completely unaware of anything really here in Maine, but I started working as the um, research director for the Mi'kmaq Amalacid uh, for the Association of Roosted Indians. Uh, and my task was uh, to um, work toward the federal recognition of the Mi'kmaq that resulted uh, 10 years later in the um, Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaq Settlement Act. But during that time, um, I was only marginally involved with the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy, but primarily with the Mi'kmaq and Maliseed. And so as to Corey's point about what happened then and how, is, how are things now, uh, there's a revolutionary change has happened uh, between the 1970s in northern Maine and today, if you think about there are two federally recognized tribes, each with their own land base, that came as a direct result of the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act with all its flaws. And so um, talking about flaws, we dissected at the time in the 1980s, uh, the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act up to the bone in order to uh, help account for the fact why the Mi'kmaq were completely left out entirely from the uh, Land Claim Settlement Act and the Holton Band of Maliseet were only added at the very last minute. Uh, so there was a very rush to get that material in order. Uh, the Passamquoddy and the Penobscot had much better uh, recorded histories than the uh, Maliseet and the Mi'kmaq in Northern Maine. And the uh, Jim Wary at the time did the work uh, for the Holton Band of Maliseet that was at that time still part of the Rustuk, um, for the Association of Rustic Indians whereas the Mi'kmaq had no idea even that there was a Land Claim Settlement Act had been signed. They were uh, suddenly realizing that the Department of Indian Affairs had a small office in Holton and suddenly closed. And they were wondering why that happened. And so suddenly the state of Maine was phasing out. Supposedly the federal government was fa fa phasing in and the indigenous peoples in Northern Maine, the Wabanaki nations in Northern Maine had no idea because no one had ever told them about what happened. So there's a huge amount of uh, rush that, um, that uh, I saw uh, when I began to try to figure out what exactly happened in 1980, the year before I, I arrived in Maine. And uh, that led then to um, not only the analysis, but also the strategy um, that uh, was put together with lawyers from legal services at the time, Pine Tree Legal, Nan Hield uh, later, but first Pat Andy and Eric Nelson, and then we had Jerry Strauss in Washington, D.C., uh, and we began to cobble together uh, a, um, a, a strategy toward federal recognition land claims and inclusion of Mi'kmaq. But I should say that I remember when I flew to Washington, D.C., I think in 1985 or 1986, I had this reflection about the future uh, as, for example, now that I'm now 71 years old, and I was looking back at um, from today as an old man, I was wondering how many people would now go over the work that we did then and will find fault about all the kind of things that we should have seen this and we should have seen that. And I realized at that time, because I had a very strong historical sense of the work that we were doing, that I realized the negotiation space uh, to fly through that pass, that narrow pass between one steep wall on one side and another steep wall on the other side, you have to navigate your small airplane right through it and not to crash. Uh, that's an extraordinary small space in, within, within which you can move. 
And then later someone sits in the library and goes over all the archives and starts saying, well, Harold Prince should have thought about X, Y, Z. And I said to myself at the time, but the X, Y, Z, I am thinking about it, but the practical facts are that my space for negotiation is very, very confined, not by me, but by the structural power, we talked earlier about power, structural power that sets the boundaries of the playing field within which you can move. And as to um, uh, Donna's earlier point, and I think that's important, um, but the terms like inequity, and, and I, I don't think we've used the term asymmetry of power, uh, but Corey was hinting at it, the asymmetrical power relationships within which the tribes were maneuvering against the state and the federal government um, within the mindset, again, back to structural power, within the mindset where the playing field was completely unilaterally defined. And so by definition, you come in at a very weak spot because you have not been participatory in how the game will be played. It's a one party against which you have to play. They set the rules and they define the um, success or failure. And just to wrap this up, um, we had recently um, the appeals court and was turned down by the Supreme Court to be heard, but it was the river case. And I saw up close as the um, expert witness for the Penobscot Nation in the Penobscot River case, I've seen up close how extraordinarily bad, there's no other word for it, judgments were made by federally, uh, federal judges here in Maine, as well as in Boston, uh, who have clearly demonstrated not to have any iota of, of knowledge nor interest in seeing um, what the stakes are and how they're being defined. I was totally appalled, but I said beforehand, before the case was heard here in Maine by the federal district court, I said, if the judge is actually interested in history and learning from history, we will have a chance. If, the, if that man will be blind to history, he will make a ruling against, this, uh, against the tribe. That's exactly what happened. In the appeals court in, um, of, the, of the first court of appeals in, in Boston, uh, we had a brilliant judge who died, uh, who was a judge from, from Puerto Rico, but the majority decision, and we later had a fantastic uh, judge, uh, Harvard professor, also great analysis, but the majority decision, if you read it, it's absolutely appalling. It's absolutely appalling. I mean, we were reading it at the time. We started saying, is that a judgment in the year 2021, 2020 that are being made by people who have no clue about Indian law, no clue about Indian history, and yet they sit there pontificating and making rulings and resetting the boundaries. And to tell you the honest truth, it is that I'm quite cynical uh, so I was not really falling out of my chair, but uh, and I had foreseen this, sadly enough, but to just see that in writing and then have these people sitting there in their black robes uh, declaring realities on the ground and defining other people's histories and lives and futures, uh, such as Corey was just listing a whole series of wrongs, that's kind of uh, insulting. And um, again, the river case, the Penobscot river case was to me, and a confirmation, sadly enough, of a colonial mindset and a colonial justice system that really needs to be uh, addressed. And that includes, of course, the whole Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act that is a product of that colonial mindset. Nicole? 
Is there a specific question you just want me to add some thoughts? Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? What you said, if not, then I'll pass it on. Well, what I'm thinking about, and you know, really fascinating conversation. I'm really enjoying it and appreciating it. Um, you know, kind of to build on what Corey was saying about not wanting going the kind of tit and tat, you know, that he said, he said, she said kind of thing. For me, where I'm at in my thinking, and this, I think this is reflective of what we're doing as a nation, not just with native people, but with African-Americans, but Asian-Americans kind of across the board is to think about the bias, right? That, that was clearly present in the 70s and 80s or even before that and, and, and today too, as you were saying, Donna, is to kind of recognize what that, that bias, that racism, uh, that perspective, how that impacted the settlement itself, right? Just to recognize that that existed. To me, that's, that's a reason enough to revisit and to amend or to scrap or whatever the solution the tribes feel like is best with the settlement acts. I mean, that, I think that's such an important thing that you can't ignore that the role that that has played and how that process went. And for that reason alone, I think you revisit it. Um, I mean, to me, again, to, just to build on or to take a little bit from what Rob Williams, I know Sherry knows Rob Williams, he's a law professor, scholar, um, my students and I were just looking at one of his books. It's called Like a Loaded Weapon. This really builds on Sherry's point about the point about the, the, the well, is that you, you know, he, he, he's looking at, he looks at federal Indian law from a critical race theory, right? Kind of look at the structure of federal Indian law. And it's clearly founded on racist ideology. Um, and, that, and that's kind of the well that Sherry's been talking about. And Rob Williams is really encouraging us as practitioners like, to think about how we use that well when we practice law and how do we change it? Do we look to international human rights law? You know, I, know the, I know Donna, you were instrumental in having the Maine legislature recognize the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Within that, you have a right to self-determination, you have consultation, you have all these rights that could serve as a foundation for the relationship between the state of Maine and the tribes. But he's, you know, he encourages us to kind of look at that foundation and to think about how that bias, that racism informed how that body of law develops and how as a body of law, because it's based on, the, on those ideologies can be used time and time again, like a loaded weapon is what he, that's the name of his book, to kind of revisit and, and for the state of Maine in this case, to kind of twist things around or, or a judge, for example, as Harold was just talking about. Because the foundation of the Settlement Acts, in my opinion, is based on a jurisdictional agreement that is really corrupted. It's based on, you know, you know the non-application of federal Indian law was added last minute. That's corrupted. Internal tribal matters, to me, that's corrupted because there's no shared understanding of what that means. And judges time and time again go in and poke around and try to decide what that means. And then the municipality piece too, right? Those kind of three parts of that jurisdictional agreement to me is corrupted, um, would that be the word I would use. And to kind of think about how do, you, how do you build from there when that foundation is just unstable and it's unstable and it was done because you had a very strong state who was very influential in kind of creating a jurisdictional agreement to their benefit. Um, and it will use that agreement time and time again to their benefit. You have to revisit that. And, and for me, again, um, looking at the motivations, the intentions behind that agreement were clearly racially motivated. Uh, there was a bias against Native people. 
And I think we're at a time as a country, and I think Maine is also, Corey was hinting at, at this as well, right? That the, the how Maine talks about Native people is very different from the did 50 years ago. I mean, I've read some of the articles. I mean, I've seen op-eds and a lot of people who are really behind making this change. And, um, you know, there's a moment here, um, but I, I think it's important to look at that, that motivation, that intention that's behind the text because that intention resulted in the text and that text has caused so many problems for native tribes today. So I think that intention, the bias um, is, is really important for the state of Maine to recognize that it played a significant role in how this was drafted. And it shouldn't be about like, well, they agreed that and this was the deal. To me, that's not so important anymore. It's like, if, if racism and bias played a role in this, shouldn't that be enough to really revisit this agreement? That's my little soapbox. <laughs> Corey? I mean, I, I totally agree with with what Nicole said. Um, I mean, I'm not really, I'm I'm trying in my mind as a as a lawyer that's working in this space to really take as positive of a forward-looking perspective as I can. Because as I said, there's so much darkness below us. And Donna, to what you said before, that education is important. I mean, personally, I feel like. I've absorbed more of it than I care to. And so what I'm trying to do and educate is to kind of like pay credence to it, but to really focus on the good that can come from an embrace of the autonomy and the sovereign power of, of tribal nations. Um, and there's there's so many examples. I just, I just saw an example um, in, in the paper from Northern Maine today from Holton County um, an example of how the Holton Band is investing, you know, seven figures in a community center um, that's also going to be um, an emergency uh, shelter. And, you know, th th this is um, a sovereign nation leveraging, you know, its unique powers, but with like so many shackles on it that it's ridiculous. And so if from nothing, the tribal nations in Maine can build what they already have. Um, which to Harold's point, you know, for some of the tribes has been, you know, very healthy and, you know, beautiful environs, then imagine what could be possible if the restraints of the Settlement Act were, were removed, or at least were revised in a way that better reflected where we are today. Um, the education is, is key, though, Donna, and, and I think where, where I'm trying to direct a lot of my attention, or I think the Wabanaki Alliance is going to be doing this moving forward, is going to be continuing that outreach to, you know, all parts of the state of Maine. And I'm personally, as you know, Donna, involved in, and Sherry, as you know, in encouraging the, the legal community to grapple with these issues. Because I know, I had a colleague who went to the Maine Bar Conference in August or July, and she talked about an Indian law subject with, um, with um, uh, Darren Ranko and, uh, and Judge Maynard was on the panel. And some of the questions that came out, you know, some of the sort of combative um, tones from the audience, from, you know, folks that were um, a little longer in the tooth than not, were very much, in, they were stuck in this, you know, 1970s mindset and putting out into the environment you know, the, the law and, you know, constructive educational materials. I think that's how we're going to change hearts and minds in the long term. 
Um, I think it's about demystifying really what sovereignty is. Um, it's not about putting up skyscraper casinos. It's really, that's not what it's about, but that's what many people think it's about. And it's terrible. Um, and I think that, you know, demystifying and building more allies and friendships, I think over the long term, you know, is gonna, that's gonna make the difference. I fully expect that in my life, we will see the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act dramatically revised, if not, you know, gutted because that's gotta happen, right? I mean, it's, it's had far too many negative consequences for our people and I think people see that now. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you have been listening to Abenaki Windows. I wanna thank Professor Harold Prince, Attorneys Sherry Mitchell, Corey Hinton, and Nicole Friedrichs. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>